Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely go again. One other thing that I think is quite interesting that I'm just going to throw out there. I don't. I'm just going to do that only. He was telling me about a clergy. Well, the DHS and FEMA had this program, Clergy Response Team, and over a hundred thousand people. Let me put it this way. Over 100,000 pastors, influential pastors, have been trained by the DHS and FEMA. And they would take this course in exchange for money that they would give to the church or to the pastor. And in exchange for that, they sign a disclosure statement that says that you cannot even tell anybody you went to this seminar. And over 100,000 pastors have done this. And any guesses? Now, basically what it is is to, for congregations so that the pastors can teach the congregations to toe the line, ultimately. Any guesses what the main teaching is? Yeah, yeah you were there, so yeah. <laughs> Romans 13. Big surprise. Now... He said that every time he hears a pastor kind of bringing that up with what's going on in the world today, that he can't help but kind of think about, did they get trained? Now, that's not to say that everybody that does, because I, I'll tell you, I, I have not been trained <laughs> by them, but yet those are the verses that still come to my mind too. So I, I don't want to throw every pastor under the bus who is saying, hey, Romans 13. But... At the same time, it's very interesting. And I was telling my wife, it would not surprise me that if some of these are more synodical presidents for certain denominations or, you know, head district offices and things like that, because... Yes, yep. And so I just found that interesting. Um, he had a lot of interesting things like that, things that are going on in the world right now that um, with his background, maybe people wouldn't you know, otherwise know about, but he has had some very interesting, uh, I would love to just sit with him for two days just to hear his stories, let alone uh, in 2014, he was in uh, Iraq, basically he and three other guys just on their own flew over there and were buying ARs out of the back of a trunk of a car or something like that and saying, all right, where are the Christians? And going to rescue Christians out of Iraq. So um, just this guy, I was, I was really impressed because, like I said, out of the gate, the first 90 minutes shaped your view. I know my wife is probably thinking I was man crushing on him because she loves to say that all the time. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't man. I was actually more impressed with that first 90 minutes because of his heart for Jesus and where he was coming from. All right. So, anyway, I just wanted to share a little bit of that, and we're going to pick up here. Um, those of you who are new or weren't here last week, we've been talking about the Sabbath. One of the big reasons why I decided to do this was because we were talking about the holidays. Everybody wanted to know about that, so I thought, all right, we'll talk about it. But the reason that we got where we are on the holidays is the same reason we got where we were on the Sabbath, and so I just thought they need to go together. And so we have been looking at church history, and we started at the time of Christ and have been moving up through the first, second, third centuries, and we're getting into the, the Catholic Church. We touched on some of that last week. We're going to continue a little bit more on there, showing you what they say. So we're going to do some church history stuff. I know I, I want to just do Bible, 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 but as I said last week, it is so important to know church history because it, it helps you understand the Bible. Not that it interprets the Bible, don't get me wrong, but that it gives you the worldview you need to see why the Bible says what it says or how it got misconstrued. And so it is important for that purpose. So let's uh, begin here, and I'm going to just continue showing you a few things in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. This is the most modern 
Catholic catechism that you're going to find basically today. So this is up to date. This isn't, you know, way back when, when Pope Gregory or any of these kind of, this is what you will learn today. And here is what it says. The Sabbath, the end of the work of six days. And then it says the sacred text says that on the seventh day God finished his work, which he had done, that the heavens and the earth were finished, and that great, or in that God rested on this day and sanctified and blessed it. These inspired words are rich in profitable instruction. Hey, I like it. Okay, sounds really good to me. Um, you know, he, he's recognizing the word is sacred. He's, they're recognizing that it is inspired. It's profitable. It's good. If they would have just stopped. They continue. In creation, oh, here's a little bit more good. But in creation, God laid a foundation and established laws that remain firm on which the believer can rely with confidence, for they are the sign and pledge of the unshakable faithfulness of God's covenant. For his part, man must remain faithful to this foundation and respect the laws which the Creator has written into it. So, in essence, God established these laws all the way back to creation. Firm covenant. That's a good thing. Okay, and I think that's important for us to realize that we are to just simply remain faithful to that covenant. But it continues saying creation was fashioned with a view to the Sabbath. In other words, you had six days of creation and it ends on the Sabbath. In other words, that all of those days were created with the culmination, the point leading to the Sabbath, the view of it. Therefore, the worship and adoration of God. Worship is inscribed in the order of creation. As the rule of St. Benedict says, nothing should take precedence over the work of God. That is solemn worship. This indicates the right order of human concerns. So, again, creation, I love this, it's pointing all of it, all six days pointed to the Sabbath, which was for him. Not pointing to us, but pointing to him. So, again, very good. And basically saying nothing should come between you and the Sabbath day. Couldn't agree more. Uh, the scriptures are very clear about this. Not only in the garden, as I've said before, when God placed Adam in the garden, that Hebrew word is shamar, meaning to protect. That Adam, going what we were just talking about today, Adam was placed intentionally in the garden to protect it to protect his family, and to protect the garden. Later on, we see in uh, Exodus or Deuteronomy, I don't remember which one, when it talks about the Ten Commandments, one of them says you are to shamar the commandments, protect them, and one of them says you are to remember the commandments. But either way, it's always pointing back. Okay, so it continues and says the Sabbath is at the heart of Israel's law. To keep the commandments is to correspond to the wisdom and the will of God as expressed in his work of creation. Again, I can still continue to agree with this. God took it extremely seriously. And as we talked about, I think it was last week, so seriously that when one gathered wood on the Sabbath day, God said, stone him, kill him. That's how serious it was. So. A Jew will be idolatrous and greedy to break the Sabbath, is ultimately where they're going to say here. No way. To keep the commandments is to correspond to the wisdom and the will of God, as expressed in his work of creation. That is something that we should do, but today, when people honor the Sabbath, you look at the Jew and they say, Ah, that's wrong. Or if we as Christians try to honor the Sabbath, oh, that's wrong. What are you doing? You're, you're just trying to be legalistic. Okay, that, no. Even here, they're seeing that this is a very important day. So these are the vital principles that have been good that the Catholic Church still recognizes. That the laws were at the foundation of the world. That's where they began. 
from the beginning of time that worship was intended from the beginning of time and that all six days was pointing to the Sabbath for the worship of God and that the Sabbath was at the very heart, the very center, the most important of all of Israel's laws. Remember we said last week, to a Jew, they determined whether one was a believer in God or not by whether they kept the Sabbath. When Jesus was supposedly breaking the Sabbath, as we've talked about before, he wasn't. They would say, he can't be from God because he breaks the Sabbath. That was the, the measuring rod for one who knew God. You keep the Sabbath or you don't. You don't keep the Sabbath, you're not of God. That simple. Here's where things start going downhill, though. But for us, a new day has dawned. Us, in this intent, means the Catholics. Okay? But the, the Christian church has adopted this as well. And he says, the day of Christ's resurrection. In other words, Sunday is now going to be the new Sabbath. Now, Amos, by the way, is going to show a prophetic message here in regards to the resurrection. So I'm going to take you to the book of Amos here, and he, what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. He says, On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, reading this by itself, it may not make a lot of sense, but actually when I had talked about uh, my message on Yeshua ben David and Yeshua ben uh, Yosef. I talked about this verse and how the rabbis interpret it. Because it's very fascinating. They see this as a messianic prophecy. That the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and they're going to say, who is this? What is this tabernacle of David that has fallen down? that's going to be rebuilt in the days of old. Well, let me just show you what the Jews said of this verse, or of these verses. Rabbi Nachum said to Rabbi Isaac, he says, have you heard when the son of the fallen one will come? He said to him, who is the son of the fallen one? He said to him, it is the Messiah. Do you call the Messiah the son of the fallen one? He said to him, yes. For it is written, on that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, the fallen one. Okay, so this is in the Talmud. To explain what Amos is talking about, he's saying that's the Messiah. The one that's going to fall, but be raised up. Okay? So I think that's very significant, that they are seeing this as a messianic prophecy. That he would fall. Hebrews 7.15 says this, and it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of the fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life, eternal. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We talked about this when we've gone through Hebrews chapter 7, eons ago it seems now, but uh, bottom line is, yeah, I know, I know. Um, when it says here, this priesthood of Melchizedek, we've talked about that a number of times. Melchizedek was here before the Ten Commandments, before the laws of Moses, but not before the law of God. The law of God was there before Moses. It was just kind of written down. And you were saved in the days of Melchizedek the same way you are saved now, by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not by his works, but by his belief in God and, and the coming Messiah. That was the rule or laws of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Then you had the priesthood of Aaron that came. And then Yeshua comes, and it takes you back to the priesthood of Melchizedek. The same rules that you had before Aaron. Now, so when he says, not according to the flesh here, 
Okay, he has come not according to the law of the fleshly commandment. He's not saying that he that the commandments are gone. He's saying that not from the tribe of Levi. The context here is he's not coming because you see you couldn't be a priest unless you were from the tribe of Levi. And therefore this Messiah is not going to come according to the law that says that you must be born fleshly of Levi. He's coming in the priesthood of Melchizedek. All right, so that's what it's saying here. Then it goes on in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 2 of Hebrews, and it says, A minister of a sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. Remember what Amos was talking about? The tabernacle of David would fall but be built up again. Here is what this is saying. That this priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus, he is going to come as a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected. We talked about that before and the difference in the third temple. Man builds it or does God build this third temple? And we say, I, I think God does because we are that temple in which the Spirit lives. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. So, do I agree with the Catholic Church that there is a new day dawning? Yes, I do. But what does that mean to have a new day dawning in Christ's resurrection from the dead? We'll talk about this another time as far as the day. I don't believe that Jesus rose on Sunday. I believe he rose at the end of the Sabbath on Saturday evening. He had already been up by the time Mary came to the tomb. Okay, but as I've said before too, anytime you read in scripture on the first day of the week, on the first day of the week too, in most of those places you'll see it says on one Sabbath or in, in reference to the Feast of Weeks. But, you know, th that's what the Greek says, but that's not oftentimes the way your English Bibles will say it. Any computer program, you can go look it up online and see. It'll say proto-sabaton. But anyway, the new day that was coming, this in Hebrews is what it was talking about. It was talking about the exact same thing Jeremiah 31 had prophesied about as well. And I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they were unfaithful, did not remain faithful to my covenant. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel at that time. I will put their laws my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. He doesn't say I'm going to get rid of the law. He says I'm going to take it from stone and put it into the temple. Put it on your minds and in your hearts so that you have a desire and a heart to do it. Not because you're out of obligation to do it, but because you have a desire to do it. And so in Hebrews 9.15, the next chapter there, it says, and for this reason... He, still talking about Yeshua, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So the reason I'm showing you this is to explain and just reveal what it means about a new covenant or a new day dawning, scripturally speaking. Not because the Catholic Church decides to make a new day dawning. But this is the kind of thing Scripture is referring to. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this, though. Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week because it is the first day, the day of Christ's resurrection, recalls the first creation, because it is the eighth day following the Sabbath. It symbolizes the new creation ushered in by Christ's Resurrection. For Christians, it has become the first of all days, the first of all feasts, the Lord's Day, Sunday. I get it, if that was your reasoning. However, the fact is that this just isn't true. One of the things I want you, as we go through this, I think it was you, Andrew, that said it last week. I thought it was a great point. There were two really good points that I really took home with me last week. One, yours, yeah, was... <laughs> yeah, Mandy gets a second one. The first one here was, remember Andrew said that 
Remember, the Catholic Church came from Rome. And what does Rome want to do? Stick it to the Jew. They hated the Jews, even at the time of Christ. Okay, All after that. So you have to understand that their view of the Jew is tainted severely from day one. The second thing, Mandy's point was just the, the idea that the people couldn't understand the scriptures. They were just kind of, you know, being told that this is what the scriptures say. They couldn't read it. It wasn't in their language in some cases. And so they were ignorant of what God's word said. And it was very easy for them to lead people astray. And I said, that's what's happening today. If we don't know our scriptures and what it really says, and you just become ignorant because you're just doing what the pastor tells you to do, you're just, all you ever get fed is what you hear from that pulpit, then you're no better than they were in those days when you were ignorant of God's word and you couldn't read it in your own language. Knowledge, truth, is extremely important. It continues and it says, we all gather on the day of the sun. Yeah, go ahead. To that, even modern day Jews don't know the New Testament. They don't know that, you know, yeah. they don't get that information. And for the same exact reason. The two hardest people for me to witness to are Jews and Catholics for the same reason. You go to a Catholic and you say, you know, the Bible says this. It doesn't matter what the Bible says because they'll say, well, my priest says that it means this. You go to a Jew. You say, Psalm 22. Who's that talking about? Now, we all know that that's talking about Jesus, clearly. And they say, well, that's Joseph because that's what the rabbis tell them. In both cases, the church authority is what determines what Scripture says. And this is one of the problems I have with the Nicene Council that we talked about last week. When Constantine and, and all of those things were going on with the Nicene Council, it kicked the Holy Spirit out of the church. What it did was it said, here is what the Bible says. We're going to make these little creeds and whatnot, which not all of them are bad. I'm not saying that. But it said, this is what we believe, and you're not allowed to go outside of that. I know that years ago, I, and I'm still sure now as we've talked about, but we were being called a cult because of our high school Bible study. A lot of you guys would come to it at that time. And I had a pastor tell me that you need to just go and you understand the Bible based on what our church fathers have told us. In other words, you cannot interpret scripture by letting scripture interpret the scriptures and let the holy spirit guide you you have to toe the line of what the church has told you that bible says and that's how a lot of denominations have gotten into this mess well what's that mean well i, I don't know uh, let me see what wesley said let me see what luther said let me see what calvin said let me see what no no how about you dive into scriptures and let scripture speak let scripture interpret scripture but, yeah, so he goes on and he says, We all gather on the day of the sun, for it is the first day after the Jewish Sabbath, but also the first day when God separated matter from the darkness, made the world, and on this same day Jesus Christ our Savior rose from the dead. Now, this is kind of removed from what we talked about last week, so I don't know if you're going to remember this, but it should sound familiar. This is what Justin Martyr talked about. They're not quoting scripture. They're quoting Justin Martyr when he says, on the first day, God separated matter from darkness. All right, he separated light from darkness, made the world, and on this same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. Let me show you here what Justin Martyr said. Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day of which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. So the Catholic Catechism is only quoting Justin the Martyr, kind of showing you how influential Justin the Martyr is here. And that's why I say it isn't right, because the fourth day is when the sun is created. There was light before the sun. Why? Because the sun, uh, S-U-N, which is created on day four, was not the source of day one because Jesus is the light of the world who was there from creation. All things were made through him. Nothing was made without him. 
So a lot of people say each day of creation is in 24 hours because how do you have light without the sun? It's not there until the fourth day. Well, what I always tell them is you don't need the sun to have a 24-hour day. All you need is an earth that is in rotation and a light source. A flashlight will do just fine, and you have evening and morning, evening and morning. So, but yeah, they are elevating the S-U-N, not the S-O-N. All right, so as you saw here that we gather on the day of the sun, and I'm just going to show you that that pagan connection obviously is there. Uh, here's what Gilbert Murray in History of Christianity in the Light of Modern Knowledge wrote. He says this, Mithraism, which we talked about who Mithras was, had so much acceptance that it was able to impose on the Christian world its own Sunday in place of the Sabbath. Its son's birthday, the 25th of December, has the birthday of Jesus. So there's more than the resurrection going on here, which is why it was established, as we talked about before, on December 25th when the days start getting longer. There's just absolutely no historical question about that. It wasn't just about the resurrection. So anyway, um, last week we had talked about the, the meeting at Milan, and eight years later, after Constantine uh, had, from this uh, conference, or whatever you call it, I can't think of the right word, Eight years later, this is what Constantine said. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest, and let all workshops be closed. So after that, he said, now Sunday is your day of rest. By pretty much law, you were supposed to not work on Sunday. And this is in 321 B.C. or A.D. Okay? So we are still being influenced by what happened in 321. This is where the church got the idea. Not in the first century. Not because of the resurrection. The early church was not meeting on Sunday. We talked about that last week. This is the root. Sunday is expressly distinguished from the Sabbath, which it follows chronologically every week. For Christians, its ceremonially, uh, ceremonial observance replaces that of the Sabbath. Replaces it. Those who live according to the old order of things have come to a new hope, no longer keeping the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day. Notice they make the distinction between the Lord's Day and the Sabbath, because they know when the Sabbath truly is in which our life is blessed by him and by his death. Now, again, you don't notice it probably as easily, but he's quoting Ignatius here. Um, and again, not going to scripture, but the, the church fathers. He goes on and it says this, The celebration of Sunday observes the moral commandment inscribed by nature in the human heart to render to God an outward, visible, public, and regular worship as a sign of of the universal beneficence. The important thing that I want you to see here is this. He says Sunday is inscribed by nature, not the Bible. And second of all, he's saying this. When you worship on Sunday, it's a public declaration to all. Okay, It is an outward, visible, public, and regular worship as a sign of his universal beneficence. <laughs> Beneficence to all. So, um, kind of, these might be a little bit not as clear, but as you saw last week, they're saying this is a sign of our authority that the church worships, worships on Sunday. That is a sign that the Catholic Church is the one that has the authority. And they still will say that to this day. It says, the Sabbath, which represented the completion of the first creation, has been replaced by Sunday, which recalls a new creation inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ. Uh, all I can think about is what we've talked about before, so I'm going to kind of speed this up, but in, in 1 Kings 12, remember Jeroboam. When Jeroboam becomes the king, what ends up happening uh, is, he says, it's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, and he makes up, a time of his own uh, 
imagination or whatever. Here are your gods, O Israel, which God brought you up from the land of Egypt. And then it goes on and it says, He ordained a feast. And he says, On the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and at Bethel he installed the priests of the high places, which he had made. Not the ones God made, not the ones God instituted, but he replaced them because of his own reasoning. I don't see how that's not what happened with a, a Saturday Sabbath. That we replaced it based on our own reasoning of the resurrection and basically saying we don't want to look like a Jew. We don't like you anyway. Now again, am I saying you cannot worship on Sunday? No, I am not saying that. But I am saying this, it is not the Sabbath. And that is not fulfilling what God has asked us to do when he says remember and protect the Sabbath. You going to church on Sunday is not doing that. Because I can't change the Sabbath. I, as I think Noah was saying here a couple of weeks ago, God sanctified that day. That day he sanctified. You can't make any other day holy. Only God can do that. Now, can you be holy? Can you be sanctified on other days? Absolutely. But you cannot sanctify the Sabbath day. Only God has power to do that. So, again, I don't want you to take this wrong and say, all right, if I go to church on Sunday, I'm sinning and all. No, that is not what I'm saying. Truth does matter, though. And you need to take this information into account in what we do. Not just on Sabbath, but on everything that we do. Romans 15.4, for whatever things were written, were written for our learning. Written before, were written for our learning. Um, in speaking of the Exodus in 1 Corinthians 10.6, now these things become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. In other words, learn from the past. Okay, I, I mean... This is out of today's news headlines right here, that we're not learning from our past. We're not, we're not seeing that God did this. He destroyed nations because they you know, did not follow him and they disobeyed his commands. And we think that somehow we're going to get away with it because we're Christians. You know, I, how dare God you know, not bless us? When, just like Jamie was saying today, not this Jamie, but the other Jamie, was saying today about you know, all the abortions and, and the, the gender confusion and the things that the church has not been a warrior to stand up against. But we said, but, but God, why? I mean, why would you let our country fall? Well, for this reason. Learn from the past. This is what God does. Yeah. 2 Chronicles 11.15, then he appointed for himself priests, continuing on here. He even appointed priests of his own. They didn't have to be Levites. They didn't have to you know, have the right fleshly commandment or any of that. I don't see how we haven't done that today. You want to be a pastor today? Great, go be one. Call yourself a pastor. Now, I'm not saying that there maybe isn't some better pastors out there that didn't go to cemetery, but... Cemetery? No, cemetery. <laughs> but, I'll tell you this, we're not also holding them accountable to what, what the Bible says, that they should be men of that are held to account a husband but of one wife, not a good reputation in town, and, and all of these different kinds of things that are talked about of what a pastor should fit, knowledgeable in the Word of God, not a new convert. I mean, there's a whole list of things, you know, for elders and pastors, and yet we just kind of, it's fine, hey, this guy has a heart for Jesus, and we'll take him. Okay? So kind of the same type of thing. But what I do like about this is this, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord, 
God of Israel came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their Israel, or their God of their fathers. Some of these people left. They saw what Jeroboam was doing was wrong. And so they left and they went to Jerusalem. They still lived in that area, but they went to Jerusalem to do their sacrifices because that's what God's word had said. They left. I think today that's what many in the church need to do. They need to leave the church they're in. And they need to go find one that is seeking after Christ and in obedience to him. You will not find a, a perfect church. If you do, don't join it. You'll ruin it. Right? And that's for me too. There is no perfect church. Okay? Because it's filled with sinners. And we are going to screw it up. But at least we can find one who is chasing after the truth and when they fall from the truth will hold themselves accountable and repent and do their best to try and follow Christ in that way in his word. Revelation 18.4, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. Again, today our, that speaker mentioned these verses too about who is the her. He kind of tended to point it to be America, be the Babylon. That he's saying, come out of her, my people. Now, he wasn't saying move out of America outside. as He's saying that America is so filled with these sins. And I think the churches, many churches are as well. And, and it's time to say, I'll answer the call, Lord. I'll answer the call. I'm going to do a little bit more here. I was hoping to get through two sessions. Um, I don't know if I will or not, but um, <laughs> the Council of Laodicea, this kind of in the same uh, period, the fourth century, I wanted to show you that there are believers that were still clinging to the Sabbath as of Saturday and that they saw this as a problem. It says this, Christians must not Judaize by resting on the Sabbath, but must work on that day. This is like so anti-biblical. The Council of Laodicea, I guess maybe that church, the letter to the church of Laodicea was quite fitting here, right? That he's saying not only are we going to call Sunday the Sabbath, but if you work on uh, Saturday, you're sinning. Or uh, not work, if you, if you don't work on Saturday, you're sinning. So, it says, if they can, resting then as Christians, but if any shall be found to be Judaizers, meaning not working on Saturday, let them be anathema from Christ. That word we don't use today, but that literally is basically saying, let them be damned to hell. That's what they say. You work or don't work on Saturday, that's as good as being damned to hell. I got news for you. Christians today who try to honor a Saturday Sabbath, that's pretty much how the modern-day Sunday Christians look at them. Legalistic people going to hell. Just can't help but see these parallels. When Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, the Nazarenes uh, were persecuted because they observed the seventh-day Sabbath. This is what Nehemiah Gordon is saying. Their synagogues were closed, their books were burned, and they were forced underground. So this is, again, not just post-Constantine. Or, or this is post-Constantine. I mean, Christians were being persecuted because they kept the Sabbath. Notice they're called Christians. So to say that right after Christ died, everything changed just is not true. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You try to live a godly life today by obeying the commandments of God, I can guarantee you, you will be persecuted. And you know who's going to persecute you the most? The church Christians. Your own brothers and sisters will persecute you the most. In ministry, in all my years of ministry, I have had 
the most, by far, persecution from the church, not from the atheists, the agnostics, and, you know, what you would think would be the antagonists. It has always been the church. We see here Pope Gregory said to the Roman citizens, Gregory, servant of the servants of God, to his most beloved sons of the Roman citizens, it has come to my ears that certain men of perverse spirit have sown among you some things that are wrong and opposed to the holy faith so as to forbid any work being done on the Sabbath day. You're perverse and you're wrong to say don't work on the Sabbath. Guys, that's what Scripture says. What else can I call these but preachers of Antichrist, which is very interesting because the Antichrist is a man of lawlessness, and this is lawless, who when he comes will cause the Sabbath day as well as the Lord's day to be kept free from all work. Yeah. This is the late 6th and early 7th century. Um, John Calvin said that this was the last good pope, by the way. Uh, Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. All right, Pope Gregory continues speaking of the Antichrist. He says, For because he pretends to die and rise again, here we go, he wishes the Lord's day to be had in reverence, and because he compels the people to Judaize that he may bring back the outward right of the law and subject the perfidy of the Jews to himself. He wishes the Sabbath to be observed. All right, I, I'm going to take you to the events of Hanukkah. We are uh, really approaching upon that time. Uh, actually, it has started. And um, you can read about this in the book of Maccabees. Really tremendous. I mean, I look at this as some really good history. And so I, I think you would do well to go and, and read in Maccabees and see the history that went on there. Because Antiochus is a type of Antichrist. And so, just like what the Pope said he was going to do in a sense, they're going to defile the Sabbath. But also he's going to have a following of Christians. Christians are going to love the, the Antichrist. Those that really don't know their word. Because he's going to speak with smooth words. He's going to use scripture. He's going to be deceptive. And I could see a vast number of people in churches today following the Antichrist. Just by looking at what's going on with vaccines and all of this stuff going on in the world today where there is absolutely no discernment and no knowledge. They're ignorant of what's in those vaccines. What it does to you that it's not like any other vaccine, and we're just going along with it because it's just what we do. So I've talked about this before when we talked about the coronavirus in the, essence, in the sense of the Antichrist and just uh, people will follow him. He's going to look like somebody that sounds good. You're going to have to have discernment. Anyway, it says this. The king, which was Antiochus IV, wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that all should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. Many in Israel gladly adopted it. Many in the church today are gladly adopting a Marxist, communistic, Luciferian ideology. Well, and not just that reason, but I mean just because of ignorance. Absolute ignorance, and if it gets me something, I'll do it. They're, they're selling out. And so this is the story of Hanukkah, and I want you to understand that Josephus talks about this too, um, with the Antichrist, his character, his behaviors, and why so many in Israel followed him. Um, Antiochus, just a little historical background, rose to power in 175 A.D. I think it was 180, no, 164 B.C. is when everything kind of came to a head. But uh, when you read about this, if you go back and read about it, Antiochus is that notable horn, or at least a, 
a partial fulfillment of it that Daniel talks about in that grease, the, the four horns that come out of the goat in Daniel. And then there was this notable one. Antiochus is that horn, but that horn is only a picture of another one that's going to come that will look just like that. And that's the value of Hanukkah is it's a picture of the Antichrist, a picture of end times events. And uh, that's why even though you read in Daniel and everybody understood that Antiochus is that horn, they also understood there's another one coming. And this is why Jesus in Matthew 24 and others said, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Nobody was saying, well, I thought that already happened. They knew that was only a foreshadowing of a, a future event still. But anyway, just note as you read Daniel, this is what it's talking about. So even in reading Daniel, I think this is great history to go back and read to get a better uh, picture of what was going on there. Um, because he deceived them by coming very peaceable for them. He was, he was fighting for the Jews, even. The Jews loved him at first. Uh, just about all of them. Um, until he started you know, desecrating the temple and slaughtering thousands of them. It says, The king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals. So not just the Sabbath, but the festivals. Sounds like the church today almost. To defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane so that they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. I can't think, help but think of Ezekiel, which says that they do not distinguish between the clean and unclean. They, they, they teach that there is no difference between them so that my, and he says, and they they uh, they do not uh, they desolate my is it not desolate they something my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them but basically reject they reject my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them and these, he's talking about the priests there in Ezekiel my priests don't distinguish between clean and unclean between righteous and and, and unrighteous. And my priests are saying that they, they desecrate the Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. And these are in the later chapters of Ezekiel, too, where this is talked about. So, anyway, a spirit of lawlessness. Daniel Joseph, uh, last week, put out his On the Fringe. And he says his title was Hanukkah, We're in it now or we're living it now. Not that Hanukkah has started, but America, we're in it. You go study the history of Hanukkah, we're in it. It's coming right now. We're, we're in the early, you know, the 171 or 74 or whatever it was there, BC. We're not to 164 BC thing where, where now it's clear that this guy is not good, but he's saying we're in it. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors, no longer to live by the laws of God, also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of the Olympian Zeus, to call the one in Gerizim the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers, as did the people who lived in that place. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. Um, friends or strangers, that's interesting, kind of basically everyone's welcome attitude. Without any signs of obedience, it doesn't matter, you're all welcome. Uh, Timothy talks about that. You know, today we have made the church our evangelistic arm. Oh, you're not a believer, you know, you're an atheist, come to church, it's okay. Yet the biblical model of church was never for the ungodly. 
that's for the church to come together to strengthen one another to feed. But instead, we have made it so that we dumb it all down so that a non-believer can come to church and then we don't want to use Christianese words because they won't understand it. And so now our kids go to church and what do they learn? Nothing. Because we got to dumb it down so that somebody can understand it. Yeah, and don't forget the candy. Yeah, we got to bribe them to get there too. And But <clears throat> that's the church today. But anyway, that, that's kind of what was going on here. Everyone's welcome. Friends or strangers. The books of the law that they found, they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Anyone found possessing the book of the covenant or anyone who adhered to the law was condemned to death by decree of the king. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. You go and read this. I, I'm not going to the events. You'll see the soldiers literally shoved pork down their throats. And one after the other, if they would not do it, were killed. One woman watched her whole family die that way. Um, Ezekiel 22. This is actually the one that I was trying to tell you here. Her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between the holy and unholy nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. That's a little damning. It is. And this is this is the church today. And, and that's what I have to ask. Is this You could say, is this the time of Antiochus, or is this the time of the world that we're in, modern society today? The only difference is this. Antiochus had to force them to do it. Daniel 7.25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change set times and laws. Okay, those, that word times there, it can be the, the appointed feasts, the appointed times, the festivals. When, when is Jesus' birth again? Okay, where is the Antichrist? What what? Uh, country is the Antichrist supposed to come out of? I don't mean, yeah, Rome. Daniel's Rome. Where have we been reading tonight? That Who's changed the Sabbath to set times and seasons? Yeah, Rome. Again, just like as Antiochus is a picture of a greater thing of the end, that's what I see this being. Okay, that the Pope, yes, he did that way back then. But remember, there will be many Antichrists. The spirit of the Antichrist has been at work all the way from the time Christ left. And you're going to have many Antichrists until the final one comes. But all of these earlier ones are just pictures, foreshadowings. And it's kind of like what, well, I guess in my, uh, I posted it here, the uh, Mark of the Beast thing here this last week. And talk about every generation has a mark of the beast moment. Why? Because every generation, I believe there's an Antichrist ready to go. He may not be the Antichrist, but there is an Antichrist. This is what John is saying. There are many Antichrists. Always have been. Revelation 12, 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Again, war, like today's message, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil, and Satan who deceived the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then, backing up there, verse 4, before that his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What I find interesting here is the, the words that are chosen. First of all, he takes you back to the Garden of Eden. The devil, the Satan, that ancient serpent. Any Jew reading this, their mind goes back to the Garden. I think we've talked about that before. Um, but his tail, the devil's tail, takes a third of what's typically viewed as angels and threw them to the earth. Isaiah 9.15 says, The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. You see, guys, there's either truth or there's a lie. 
if you're not for Christ, you are against him. If you're not for the word of God, then you're going against the word of God. So, if the devil can deceive a third of heaven, a third of angels who saw, you know, creation, do you really think he's not going to be able to deceive the church? If we don't know the word of God, and we don't start taking a stand on the word of God, whether it be abortion, or homosexuality, or any aspect of it, you will be deceived. 2 Peter 2, 20, uh, 1 says, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Um, when we call evil, evil, I want to show you what Cicero said here. I think it's very fitting for us today. A nation can survive its fools and even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gates is less formidable, for he is known, and he carries his banners openly against the city. There's that banner thing. The traitor moves among those within the gates freely, his sly whispers rustling through all alleys, heard in the very halls of government itself. For the traitor appears no traitor. He speaks in the accents familiar to his victim. He wears their face and their garments, and he appeals to the baseness that lies deep in the hearts of all men. He rots the soul of the nation. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of a city. He infects the body politics so that it can no longer resist. A murderer is less to be feared the traitor is the plague. We now have homosexuals running churches. And the sheep continue to follow and listen. Churches are filled with traitors. We were warned that that will happen. But for some reason we think, oh, but that's not our church. That wouldn't happen. I wouldn't allow that to happen. How much church discipline is your church practicing? Romans 6.16, and I'm done. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? Let that sink in for a moment. Do you not know you are slaves to the one whom you obey? That means this, just like I said before, if you're not obeying God, who are you obeying? Not God. And then who are you a slave to? Well, the one you're obeying. Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Abiding under the power of any known sin is a mark of our being the servants of sin. For his servants ye are to whom ye obey. Charles Spurgeon said that. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. It's amazing to me these words, we just let them fly by, but we don't really process what it means. People, well, what really is sin? Is it a sin to do this? Well, let me tell you. How do you define what sin is? Sin, let, me, let me give you the biblical definition. Sin is lawlessness. How do you know what lawlessness is if you've gotten rid of the law? We have to know the law of God to know whether it's sin. You have to know Scripture to know whether you're going against Scripture. So, anyway, I, I wanted to get done with this because... I, I've got some history to go through, but not much left. I wanted to finish the history part because I'd rather be in the Word more. But you needed to see some of that. And there's so much more that we could show you, but that's a sampling to give you an idea of where a lot of this stuff has come from.
between last week and this week. I mainly looked at the Catholic Church here today, but yeah, that is true. I didn't think of that. Will you be doing for Marston at all? Looking at like why the separation between the Jews and the Yes, and that's an important one. That's why I said there's still a little bit left. I think that's going to be a little bit more valuable than what this was. That's why I really flew through these. Um, but Marcion's a very important one to look at. Um, that's going to really solidify everything that we've been talking about. But so We have to understand, again, with all of what we're talking about, these aren't salvation issues. Do I believe that if somebody put a gun to my head and said, okay, now you have to, you know, uh, tell a lie or even murder this person, kill this person right here, or I'm going to kill you, and you kill them, does that mean you're going to go to hell? I, I'm not saying that. Just like the Sabbath. This isn't a salvation issue. This is a, an issue of righteousness. This is an or uh, of sanctifying, being sanctified. That when we obey God, that's the, the blessing. God gives us these because... He wants what's best for us. And we are, have robbed ourselves of that blessing in the Christian church. But I also believe that there are bigger blessings in obeying certain things than others. Just like there's bigger consequences for certain sins than there are for others. And Satan knows that there is such a blessing in the Sabbath that he has gone after this for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. Because he knows there is a huge blessing in that. 